this verse week in and week out. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, these are written, everything you see in John's gospel account, including what we're going to look at this morning, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so if you come in this morning unsure of who Jesus really is, or you come in this morning longing to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is, this is a fantastic book of the Bible to camp out in. Each of these I am statements is meant to function as a facet of a multifaceted jewel that as you spin it, you just see another beautiful facet of who Jesus is and what that means for us. And so if you have not been around for much of this series, I'd encourage you to go back Go online, listen to the podcast, because it, it puts together the jewel in its fullness to, to do so. We've made our way through five of the seven thus far of Jesus' I am statements. This morning, we're going to take a look at Jesus' famous declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 14. We'll be in verses 1 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible. Open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a difficult translation, take that Bible for free. Church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Jesus, you begin John chapter 14 with six loving, gracious, compassionate words. Let not your hearts be troubled. And my guess is that most of us in this room, myself included, bring troubled hearts into this place this morning. Whether it has to do with a dead-end job, declining health, a struggling marriage, loneliness, whatever it is, we, we bring things into this space that, that we could categorize as unholy unrest. And you promise to meet us in that. In this very chapter of the Bible, you unpack what it means that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and how that meets us in the midst of our troubled hearts. And so would you do that this morning? Would you, would you stir within us? Would you convict us? Would you correct us? Would you comfort us? Would you heal us by the power of your indwelling spirit? Ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As you pick up the story in, in John chapter 14, Peter is, has just declared in a flesh-empowered moment that he will lay down his life for Jesus. Peter's really good at, at saying things like that, right? It's, it's, uh, it's irrational, unfiltered boldness that we encounter when you, when you look at Peter throughout the Gospels. He's the quintessential, I don't think you know the full implications of what you're saying, guy in the Gospels. And Jesus responds by declaring that Peter will in fact deny Jesus three times. Before the rooster crows, before the sun comes up, you can see how this would be troublesome for the rest of Jesus' disciples. If Peter would deny you three times, what does that mean for us? If Peter can't even make it through the night without you, Jesus, being present, we're in serious trouble here. And so though it's Jesus who's facing imminent death, though it's Jesus who, who, who should experience and is experiencing a troubled heart in the midst of his impending crucifixion, it's also Jesus who brings comfort to the troubled hearts of his followers in John chapter 14. And that includes you and me, as we'll see in just a moment. They're confused. They're uncertain of what Jesus means as he references his soon-to-be departure. He's been with them for, for a few years now, and he says that he's going to leave them. 
And they're wrestling with that. And so Jesus enters into this dialogue with them, seeking to help them see why it's good that he should leave them. That he must leave in order to defeat Satan, sin, and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. And that he must leave in order to prepare an eternal dwelling in the presence of God for his followers. Picking up in verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Isn't that the Christian life? I mean, if we could really boil it down, isn't that the Christian life? Let not your heart be troubled, but rather believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Every day we're tempted to feel some sort of unholy anxiety about a problem that we're facing. And the question that begs to be answered in those moments is, will I believe in God? Will I believe in Jesus? Will I believe he is who he says he is? Will I believe that all those promises that find their fulfillment in Jesus are mine for the taking? Will I embrace that? Will I believe that? Jesus is unquestionably after belief in this passage. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you skip down to verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Going back to, again, to that very reason John records his gospel account. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That the belief is how we fight against unholy anxiety. Belief is how we war against the unholy unrest in our hearts. That's It's why we're committed around here as a church to viewing the Christian life as a war. It's a a war. It's a dogfight to believe, to trust in God, to believe in God, to have faith in God, to war against the unholy, uh, unholy troubled heart of unbelief, to war against unholy anxiety with the promises of who God is and who he is for us in Christ. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 2. In my Father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. That, that part of the fight to believe is rooted in the glorious eternal future that Jesus promises his followers. Here, Jesus says some pretty incredibly encouraging things, Right? Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. This is a picture of heaven, and it's described as a big house. I didn't even grow up in the church, and I know the cheesy song. It's a big, big house, lots and lots of rooms. Like, you know, like there's space. It's not like our house uh, about seven or eight days ago when my family came up to help me watch our girls because Brooks was on a reunion weekend with some friends of hers. And the way our home is set up, because we have two toddlers, we have to split them out into two different bedrooms. If we put them together, it'll be an eternal, never-ending slumber party. And so we split them up, we divide and conquer, but as a result of doing that, we have very little space for guests. So there's always a blow-up mattress involved when family members come to visit. We have to kind of creatively carve out space. That's not God's house, according to Jesus. That all who believe have no need to worry of whether or not there will be space for them. That God's eternal dwelling is quite spacious. He's not going to turn you away because there's no room at the inn. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? A place not just for Peter and his friends, a place for you. A place for me. 
We, we've got to get past for God so loved the world. That's a part of it. And, and embrace Jesus loves me, this I know. And soak in that until it changes us. A place for you. That's a glorious promise that we can wield in the midst of unholy unrest that we find in our hearts. We can fight unholy anxiety by remembering that we have a room in God's eternal house. That's unbelievable. That death is, is not the end of the story. It's the gateway into something even more glorious. And notice that it's not ultimately about a place, but rather a person. Jesus says, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That heaven is ultimately the presence of God. The presence of Jesus. Heaven is ultimately where Jesus is, being where he is. In the words of one commentator that I read this week, the second coming is not a return to heaven, but a reunion with Christ. Elsewhere in this passage, Jesus will connect the dots to the other two persons that make up the Godhead. The hope of heaven is being eternally caught up, Jesus will argue, in this joyful dance with Father, Son, and Spirit. A dance that's been taking place since before the foundations of the world. Let not your heart be troubled. War against unholy anxiety and unrest in your heart with the beautiful truth that you will forever, forever bask in the presence of God, your maker and redeemer. And no one can take that from you, Christian. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas is like wanting to Google map this thing, right? He's, he's thinking in geographical terms. He's missing the point that when Jesus uses the, the phrase the way, he's talking about himself as the necessary object of their faith. And so Jesus says, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That famous declaration, Jesus answers Thomas's question about where he's going and how to get there by saying, I'm it. I'm the road. I'm the path. There is no other road. There is no other path. Going back to a couple weeks ago where Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. He's saying there, there are not multiple paths to heaven. There are not multiple ways to the top of the mountain. He's claiming that he's the only one with tickets to the new heaven and earth. As Peter will go on to say in a moment of more filtered boldness in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. That Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth who embodies God and the one who has life in himself. That he goes to prepare a place for us and he's the way that we get there and he's the truth that we embrace to get there and he's the life that we will enjoy when we get there. That because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the only way to be in the presence of this God is through the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' very own words, verse six, no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, let, let's not play any games here. We've, we've been talking about it for weeks now. If you're a professing Christian, you have either come in this morning to gather in worship of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, or you're a raving lunatic for being here this morning because you're here in the name of worshiping a liar or a crazy man. That's what's at stake here. When Jesus says things like this in the Gospels, that's what's at stake. 
We can't just compartmentalize him and call him a good teacher or a wise philosopher. He does not give space for that. He's either the Lord of glory, and we have gathered in worship of him as the Lord of glory, or we along with him are crazy people, out of our minds, and not in a good way. As Thomas Akempis wrote in his famous work, The Imitation of Christ, he says, Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. That Jesus is declaring himself to be the way to God because he is the truth who embodies God and the one who has life in himself. Verse 7, the dialogue continues. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you, you do know him and have seen him. We've seen this in this series before, right? To know and see me, Jesus says, is to know and see the Father. If you don't know me, you don't know God. Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Still, still a misfire at this point. Verse 9, Jesus responds to Philip. said to him, have I been with you so long, so long, and still you don't know me? Philip, that it's possible to quote-unquote be around Jesus for years and still not know him. To be a good, church-going, law-abiding citizen and somehow going back to last week to miss the intimate voice of the good shepherd altogether. It's possible. Jesus goes on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The, the, the declarations of divinity, they just keep coming. He's, he's de declaring the same things in different ways over and over again. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That if you want to know how God thinks, look at how Jesus thinks. If you want to know how God feels, look at how Jesus feels. If you want to know how God acts, look at how Jesus acts. This should revolutionize the way we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together. That to look at Jesus is to look at God. If you want to know how God feels about you, look at how Jesus feels in the Gospels. If you want to know how God would respond in, in moments of action, look at how Jesus responds in the Gospels. That we can war against unholy anxiety and unrest in our hearts because God has made himself known to us. And we see him most surely in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. At this point... Some of you, maybe many of you should be thinking this. The unrest in the apostles' heart is, hearts is not the unrest in my heart. That's not what I bring to the table this morning. I'm not, I'm not in a first century uh, Palestinian context. I'm not wrestling with Jesus leaving me to go to a, a Roman splintered wooden cross. That's not my issue. My unrest has to do with a struggling marriage or a dead-end job or declining health or loneliness or fill in the blank with whatever it is that is calling, causing unholy unrest in your heart this morning. 
Uh, those, those battles are unique for each of us. We could fill in the blank very differently, all of us. Which is why I think what Jesus goes on to say is quite unbelievable. Jesus doesn't tell us to just hang on tight and wait it out for the new heaven and new earth. If you can just hang on for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 more years, depending on what age bracket you fall into, then you'll be okay. I'll be with you. I'm preparing a place. Just hang tight. That's not what Jesus does. Skipping down to verses 15 through 18. Glorious promise. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Listen to this, verse 18. Glorious. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's unbelievable, people. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here. Yes, we have the future promise of an eternal dwelling place with God. Make no mistake about it. But it doesn't mean we're orphaned until then. That he promises to be present with us and in us by his spirit. Which is why the Apostle Paul would say something like this. Romans 8 verses 9 and 10. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if you're a Christian, we've talked about this before a number of times, the spirit of God dwells in you. That'll make your head spin. You have the spirit of Christ. Christ is in you, Paul says. That's not future tense language. That's right now, in this moment, in the midst of your untroubled heart, whatever it looks like, he's with you. That's a promise that Jesus cares deeply about your struggling marriage. Jesus cares deeply about your dead-end job. Jesus cares deeply about your loneliness. Jesus cares deeply about your declining health. Fill in the blank with whatever it is. That going back to last week, he's the good shepherd who cares about his sheep. That if you're a Christian, rest this morning in the fact that Jesus loves you deeply. He's not some future tense promise for us to hold on to in the midst of present tense unrest, though that is part of it. He's a, few, he's a present tense promise too. The hope of glory, Christ in you. I think when we, when we get there in just a few minutes to this time of reflection, I think that might be the best thing we could do as a church is just soak in the reality that he's with us and he cares. He's not just with us, he's in us by his spirit indwelling that you are his dwelling place. Which helps to make sense of verses 12 through 14. Going back to verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is kind of crazy. Okay, it's not just that Jesus works in us to war against unholy unrest in our hearts, but it's that he also works through us, that we're invited into this rescue mission of God. We get to carry on Jesus's work. And this is not just for 
for pastors. This is not just for community group leaders. This is not just for people who have been through a Bible 101 course or have read a systematic theology book cover to cover. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, if you're a Christian, that's you. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years or 30 days. You're invited into this rescue mission of God, and so am I. It's a glorious work that we get invited into to be a part of. That, that Jesus, his mission was to point people to Jesus, right? If we could really dumb it down. And we get to be a part of doing the very same thing. We get to point people to Jesus, both through our words and through our works. And Jesus even goes so far as to say that we will do greater works. Not meaning that we're going to out-miracle Jesus. I mean, if you've, if you've walked on Lake Peachtree recently or like you've taken the contents of a kid's lunchbox and used them to feed thousands or raise somebody from the dead, you are at the top of my list for coffee this week. Like I want to get coffee with you before anybody else and hear about how that went because that's not true to experience for most of us. However, what is true is that we're on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the dawning of a new age, right? We, his death and resurrection is no longer a promise to be anticipated, but a fulfillment to be celebrated and declared. That we're on the other side of Jesus' declarative, it is finished. And we can join him in declaring those words to people around us that he's brought into our lives. That we get to tell people about a sin-conquering, death-conquering, Satan-conquering, hell-conquering Savior. That we get to point people to Jesus in the wake of his having already triumphed over all of those things. And not only that, we get to be part of Jesus' global initiative. Famous verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You do realize, I was thinking about this this week. You do realize that South Metro Atlanta was considered the end of the earth during Jesus' time of ministry, right? That we're a part of the end of the earth, the globalization of the gospel. You and I, we get to be a part of spreading the gospel far beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Empowered by his spirit and asking in his name, we get to be a part of a global gospel initiative right here in our own backyard. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. In the same way that the moon has been perfectly positioned to reflect the sun's light, so you and I have been perfectly positioned to reflect the glory of God. According to Acts chapter 17, God has determined the allotted period and boundary of your dwelling place, that God has you at this moment in human history May 2017, in this place on planet Earth, South Metro Atlanta, and the reason he has you here, right here, right now, is to be the moon and to reflect the glory of God in a unique way, to point people to the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ himself. That if you think about all of redemptive history, our paragraph is quite small. There's something humbling about this, and yet our paragraph is ours. It's unique. For the glory of God. Where God has you, who he has in your life, the way he has uniquely wired you, gifted you, surrounded you with the neighbors, coworkers, friends that you have, people who don't know Jesus. Your paragraph is incredibly small in redemptive history, but it's incredibly unique and it matters in the eyes of God. That Christianity is not just about Jesus meeting us in our unholy unrest. Yes, that's true. 
but it's about us acting as agents of hope and redemption in the midst of others' unholy unrest. But to tell others that, that Jesus is preparing them an eternal dwelling place in the presence of God, that he's preparing them a room. And not just that, but to tell them they don't have to wait because to believe in him is to see and savor him now, to know his indwelling presence by his spirit now, that he is ours both present and future, present with us by his spirit, and one day we shall see his face. Revelation 21 and 22. Which leads me to one final thought. Just so we don't walk away with an incomplete gospel this morning. Notice that, and I've missed this for for years. Notice that Jesus doesn't say here in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one escapes hell except through me. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one escapes God's wrath except through me. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one is rescued from the guilt and shame associated with sin except through me. Is it true that Jesus saves us from hell by dying in the place of hell-bound sinners? Absolutely. Is it true that, that Jesus rescues us from God's deserved wrath by absorbing the wrath of God in our place? Yes and amen. Is it true that Jesus rescues us from sin's shame by being shamed and defiled in our place? That Jesus rescues us from sin's guilt by taking our guilty verdict upon himself and giving us his righteous record? Undeniably. But notice that John 14 is about so much more than that. That's such an incomplete gospel. Jesus tells us not what we're rescued from, but rather who we're rescued to. No one comes to the Father except through me. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That escaping God's wrath is not the ultimate aim of salvation. It's a means so that we can stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God's presence and not be incinerated in an instant, but rather can enjoy making much of him forever. That escaping hell is not the ultimate aim of salvation, It's the means by which we can enter into this eternal dwelling place of God and enjoy making much of him forever. That being rescued from guilt is not the ultimate aim of salvation. It's a means by which we can stand before the glorious judge of all of creation and not be banished, sentenced uh, to to, uh, be uh, out of his presence forever, but rather can be invited into the presence of this glorious judge of creation and enjoy making much of him forever. That the gospel is not ultimately that we get to escape hell and have our guilt absolved, though that is part of it. The gospel is ultimately that we get God. That he's the gospel. He is the gift. Now, why do I say that? What's the tie-in? Other than than Jesus declaring that he is the the way to the Father. What's the other tie-in? The other tie-in is this. Coming back to some of the things we've talked about this morning. I think one of the questions we could really wrestle with is this. If you could have your troubled heart troubled no more and obtain a room in the new heaven and new earth, if you could have those things but Jesus wasn't there, would you be satisfied? Another way to ask the question, is it simply what you're rescued from that draws you into Christianity? Or is it who you're rescued to? 
significant difference, total paradigm shift. And here's the deal. Your answer to that question will not only radically shape the way you live your life, but it'll radically shape the way you tell others about Jesus. It's not just about having hope for our troubled hearts and gaining a room in God's eternal house. It's about getting God both now and forever. He is ours and we are his. His presence is the hope of our troubled hearts. His presence is the joy of that eternal dwelling to come. That he is our greatest gain. And Jesus is the way into the presence of this glorious God, both now and forever. We're going to shift momentarily into a time of reflection. And during those few minutes, I I would just invite you, one, to celebrate. To celebrate that Jesus has made a way into the presence of God. That Jesus has made a way for us to be indwelt by God, the Spirit, now. And that Jesus has made a way for us to see the face of God and not burn up in a blink, but rather enjoy it when it happens. Jesus has made a way. There's something to celebrate this morning. And he's done so through the cross, through, through his crucifixion and resurrection. And so as we move out of that time of reflection, we'll... Uh, Participate in communion where we take the bread here, dip it in the cup, the bread representing his broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. It's not just an opportunity to rejoice as we reflect and receive of the elements, but also to remember, to remember who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and and to to repent, to repent from uh, turning to other things in the midst of of our unholy unrest, right? There are a, a thousand things to turn to other than him. And yet he offers us himself. And so this morning, I I invite you to to rest in him, to enjoy him, to receive all of the benefits that are yours by way of the indwelling spirit of God. You have the capital C comforter indwelling you. You have the capital C healer indwelling you. You have the capital C convictor for your good indwelling you. Let's rest in the fact that that we can know God, we can be known by him, and that we don't have to wait it out for that to happen orphaned until that day, but we can experience that right now this morning and as we leave this place and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and I can just keep on throwing out dates until I'm blue in the face.